We turn to Psalm 141. We read this psalm. A psalm of David. Lord, I cry unto thee. Make haste unto me. Give ear unto my voice when I cry unto thee. Let my prayer be set forth before thee as incense, and the lifting up of my hands as the evening sacrifice. Set a watch, O Lord, before my mouth. Keep the door of my lips. Incline not my heart to any evil thing, to practice wicked works with men that work iniquity, and let me not eat of their dainties. Let the righteous smite me, it shall be a kindness. And let him reprove me, it shall be an excellent oil, which shall not break my head, for yet my prayer also shall be in their calamities. When their judges are overthrown in stony places, they shall hear my words, for they are sweet. Our bones are scattered at the grave's mouth, as when one cutteth and cleaveth wood upon the earth. But mine eyes are unto thee, O God the Lord. In thee is my trust. Leave not my soul destitute. Keep me from the snares which they have laid for me, and the gins of the workers of iniquity. Let the wicked fall into their own nets, whilst that I withal escape. We read God's word that far. We take as our text verse 5 this evening in connection with preparatory. Let the righteous smite me, it shall be a kindness. And let him reprove me, it shall be an excellent oil, which shall not break my head, for yet my prayer also shall be in their calamities. Beloved in our Lord Jesus Christ, as sinners, there are times when we are living and walking in ways that are contrary to God's will. Not only do we have our facts wrong, but we're walking in ways of sin. We're walking outside of God's commandments. In our pride, we like to think that we're right. But there are times when we are very, very wrong. We're inclined to proceed in our own stubborn ways, despite what other people think. And we don't appreciate those who would come and try to correct us, to try to tell us that we're wrong. For sure we would not be inclined of ourselves to pray for or to desire that that behavior be used against us. But that's precisely what we find here in Psalm 141. We find David praying that others would come and rebuke him. That others would come and smite him when he walks in sin. Now that's remarkable. As you can well imagine, that's not a very popular prayer. When's the last time you prayed something like that? Desiring that God send people into your life to correct you and to smite you. This is not something that we delight in. It's not something that we would desire. Most commentators are of the opinion that this psalm was written during the time when David was being pursued by Saul. We don't have the ability precisely to know the time period, but you children understand that time period. 
Saul was pursuing David. And David was running. And as David was fleeing from Saul, he was constantly being oppressed. There were times during that period that David had a few opportunities to get revenge against Saul. Remember, for instance, the time when he was in the cave of En Gedi. In verse 6, we have a reference here to stony places, which would be similar to what was taking place there in that cave of En Gedi. And remember, David snuck into that cave and he found Saul laying there sleeping. And so he cut a piece of his robe off and then he snuck back out again. And then the next morning confronted Saul. Even though David had walked in a way that was upright, he had not done anything negative towards Saul, despite the attempts of his men. His men pleaded with David, David, now's your chance. Kill him. Destroy him. David refused. But he still felt guilt. Because he had mocked the Lord's anointed. David experienced that sensitivity to sin. That even though I didn't kill him, I merely cut off a piece of his garment, yet I ought not have so treated the Lord's anointed. It was during that time of trial, David was praying that God would guard his lips, that God would guard his heart, and that God would keep and preserve him. And we find that here in this psalm. That prayer and desire of David. Set a watch before my mouth, verse 3. Incline not my heart to any evil thing, to practice wicked works. And then in verse 5. Let the righteous smite me. It shall be a kindness. Let him reprove me. It shall be an excellent oil. Fools resent admonition. They resent reproof. The wise view such as necessary and seek to profit from us. As those who examine our hearts in this coming week, we look at the nature of that reproof and the nature of this prayer and what our attitude ought to be toward it. And as we examine our hearts, we desire that God give us the grace to pray this prayer with sincerity, that sin in our lives be exposed so that we by God's grace, repent and turn from it and that we come to the table of the Lord with joy, confessing the wonder of the forgiveness that is ours in Him. A prayer to be smitten and reproved. We note, first of all, the prayer. Secondly, the Spirit's work. And finally, the blessing. Let the righteous smite me. Let him reprove me. We read, The word that's used here for reprove is often used in the Bible for rebuke or correction. In Job chapter 5 verse 17 we read, Behold, happy is the man whom God correcteth. Therefore despise not thou the chastening of the Almighty. The correction of God is reproof. In chapter 13 verse 10 of Job, He will surely reprove you if you do secretly accept persons. And then another reference where this verb is used, Proverbs 3, verse 12. For whom the Lord loveth, he correcteth, even as a father the son in whom he delighteth. Reproving, that is correcting. The word smite adds to that, signifying a severe stroke that shakes the one who's affected to the point even of death or intense trembling. There are many references also to that idea of that smiting 
Proverbs 23, verse 35. They have stricken me. Shalt thou say, and I was not sick? They have beaten me, and I felt it not. When shall I awake? I will seek it yet again. Here the Spirit is using that word to refer to one who's taken too much alcohol. And the effect of that alcohol is that that alcohol has beat him up. That alcohol has caused him to become drunken and affected by the abuse of it. His senses are deadened. The word refers then to the terrible pain when he's hung over and when he experiences the feeling as though he was beaten and everything aches in his body. But then tragically, as you recall in that proverb, in his foolishness, he turns right back and he goes right again into that way of sin. The word is used to refer to the stroke of a hammer on the anvil when bending a piece of iron. We read in Isaiah 41, verse 7, So the carpenter encouraged the goldsmith, and he that smootheth with the hammer, him that smote the anvil, saying, It is ready for the soldering. And he fastened it with nails, that it should not be moved. Another striking incident with this smiting is taken from the incident of jail. Remember during the time of Judges, when Sisera was running for his life, a wicked captain, and he came into the tent of a woman whose name was Jail. And remember, he asked for water. What did Jail give him? Milk. She gave him milk. She gave him butter. She took care of him. She gave him more than he needed. And finally, he was tired. And so he asked if he could take a little nap. And so she left him a spot in her tent. And you children, remember what happened after he fell asleep. She smote the nail into his temples and fastened it into the ground, for he was fast asleep and weary, so he died. Judges 4, verse 21. Now the significance of referencing those passages is to emphasize this. We're not talking here about a little tap on a hammer. This is referring to a planned, decisive blow that is swift, that's sharp, and that hurts. It's one trying to dislodge Say, a stone from concrete and holding carefully the chisel and aiming carefully with the hammer in order to drive a hard strike in order to knock loose that rock. For this type of a blow, the psalmist prays. Now this stroke needs to be understood in the context of sin. We're all inclined to walk in ways that we ought not. And we're so deceived as to our human nature at times to try to justify our involvement in that sin and in those sinful activities. Now, most often, deep down, we know better. We know that we ought not be doing what we are. And we know what we're doing is wrong. But we still continue in it. And we don't want to be corrected. There are other times that we fall into sins that we're not even aware of. This reproof, this smiting is a careful, focused admonition that is given in love. That idea of the love is emphasized in our text when it talks about let the righteous smite me. And we'll deal with that in more detail in a few moments. The idea here is that of one who loves me and now comes to me with this sharp, hard rebuke, but does so in love. My brother, my sister is walking in sin. They're living apart from God. They're not enjoying fellowship and communion with the living God as they walk in that sin. 
And therefore, love and wisdom dictate that the reproof is given according to the word of God. This isn't just my attitude. It's not just my opinion. And from that perspective, in 2 Timothy 3, verse 16, the idea of reproof is directly tied with the word of God. Remember there, the apostle is speaking of the Bible being inspired, being infallible. And the purpose for which God gives the infallible scriptures includes that it's profitable for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. Now David emphasizes this reproof comes from the one who's righteous, not from the ungodly, not from the one who's a hypocrite, not from the Pharisee. They aren't walking in love. They're not looking out for the well-being of the individual. They're not seeking God's glory. Let the righteous rebuke. This is a member of the church. This is someone who goes to church with us. Someone who loves us. Someone who loves God. Who loves God's will and God's ways. That one. Let that one reprove. He will be motivated by love. Now the idea of the reproof here involves all kinds of sins. We sometimes distinguish private and public sins. While the sins may be dealt with differently by the church, there's no difference from the perspective of bringing those sins to the attention of one who's walking in them. We don't take the perspective that, oh, that's a sin that the church will deal with, therefore I don't have to deal with that brother or that sister with regard to this or that sin. Regardless of the nature of the sin, the sinner needs to be confronted with that sin. No one is above criticism. No one is above rebuke. And the one who brings the rebuke, the one who brings the correction, is called to go with carefulness. Present the facts. Give opportunity for explanation. If there's sufficient explanation and it's justified, the matter is dropped. If the person repents and turns from the sin, the matter is dropped. Where there's not repentance, then the matter needs to be pursued further to the point even of having to be told to the church if necessary. But this rebuke here is a carefully aimed stroke. The one that's bringing the righteous rebuke seeks to bring the rebuke as succinctly, as clearly, as pertinent as possible. A number of things we can say in connection with that comparison. There needs to be a swiftness to the rebuke. This person doesn't beat around the bush, doesn't wait months to bring the matter to the attention of the one who sinned. He prays for the courage to do it quickly. Now, he does so in a manner that also is swift, but yet wise. And we think of some illustrations in the Bible where individuals brought rebukes. Think of Nathan the prophet coming to David after David had committed murder and adultery. Nathan comes with a very careful, pointed rebuke. Now, he does so in form of a story. But that story was an urgent story that had a point. And Nathan gets to the point relatively quickly. There's a decisiveness to the stroke, to the rebuke. So that while there's preparation that's required, there's thought that's necessary in order to determine how is it that this ought be approached, the matter needs to get to the point. 
The person is not to be left wondering, what was the issue? Why did that person come and talk to me? What was the concern they had? The heart of the issue is made clear. And the one who's going is one who prays. Prays for forgiveness himself or herself. Prays for the mercy of Christ that's been shown. And comes in love with a desire for repentance and reconciliation. Another aspect of the comparison to a strike is that this rebuke hurts. It's like the stroke of a hammer. It's not just a tap on the shoulder. This is a blow. Thou art the man, was the word of Nathan. And that struck David. It hit him hard. It crushed him. It brought him to repentance by God's grace. His pride was crushed and his sin was exposed. Now what does it mean that this rebuke is the rebuke of the righteous. Again, that continues to get at the manner in which we are called to assist one another in love. First of all, it's without bitterness. It's easy to come with a rebuke because of personal hurt. Someone hurt me and now I'm getting back at them. And I'm motivated then by bitterness. I'm motivated by a desire for revenge. That's not righteous. The righteous man, woman, comes with a rebuke that's motivated by love, seeking the glory of God. He's not coming because his pride has been hurt or because he tries to put that person in his or her place or is trying to humiliate that one. The righteous comes praying that my motives have nothing to do with revenge but everything to do with love for God and the neighbor. Righteous also would mean that the brother, the sister comes privately, not with publishing it to the world, not a gossip, but doing so according to love. Hatred spreads it around. Hatred makes known the sin, whereas love covers the sin and love privately goes to the brother, the sister, in order to make known that concern. Evidence of whether or not your or my motive is correct will be evident in how we deal with the sin. Are we talking to others about it? Are we publishing it abroad? Are we doing everything in our power to blacken the name of the brother or the sister? Then there's no love in our hearts. We're not walking in a manner that's righteous. Love keeps quiet. And love just goes to the brother, goes to the sister, in order to make known the rebuke, the admonition. Third, the righteous one is one who conducts himself or herself in a manner without disgracing the friend. He's not bringing the matter in public, in the middle of the family reunion or in the middle of a whole bunch of people. This is the most important consideration. His desire is to restore, not to blacken. And so the righteous does what one is able to preserve the name and therefore bringing the matter privately and carefully. But finally, for the glory of God. That's ultimately the motivation. God's glory. The concern being the relationship of the brother, the sister, with Christ. And this is the most important consideration of the righteous man, the righteous woman. Beloved, when someone comes to you or comes to me, who you know is motivated by a love for God, who loves God, and who wants what's best for God and for His church. You know that one loves you. That one cares about you. He's not coming to hurt you. She's not coming in order to try to 
cause more pain, they're coming to help. And that righteous rebuke then is motivated by love for the glory of God. The only thing more difficult than receiving rebuke is bringing rebuke in a righteous manner. When we feel a need to reprove, we need to pray about it. We need to be convicted in our hearts. Our motivation is right. We don't go with a hammer to try to beat up and destroy. We go with oil, as the, the text speaks of. It shall be an excellent oil to build up, to heal, with a view to recovery. We make our rebuke succinct and to the point. And we know that that rebuke is going to hurt. So we come ready to forgive. Ready to restore the brother, the sister. Ready to show them the mercies of Christ and to bring them the comfortable words of Scripture. Often our love and our devotion to the brother or the sister is going to make our language all the more sharp and our desire for repentance all the greater. We thank God for the grace by which the righteous are able to be angry and sin not. The wicked are angry and they act cruelly. They bring flatteries. They refuse to expose sin. Now, beloved, this all doesn't mean that we have to be without sin in order to bring a rebuke. We must strive at all times to be living blameless lives before God. And that means that no one ought be easily able to get a finger under our character. By God's grace, that's the way that we seek to live as blameless men and blameless women. Called to be living as those who are holy, fighting against sin, walking in humility, seeking to do what's right and pleasing in God's eyes out of thankfulness to God. We go to the brother, we go to the sister in humility, confessing that my righteousness is in Christ alone. My strength is not found in myself or in my own works. The righteous one is one who knows I'm a sinner, saved by grace alone. And in that spirit of humility, I bring the rebuke. Beloved, for this we need to pray. But also, we need to pray for such rebukes. That's the striking nature of this passage. The word of God that comes to us, beloved, this evening is, this must be the character and nature of your and my prayers. This prayer rises from the depths of the heart of the child of God who desires to walk humbly before his God. He desires to glorify God in all of his life. And he wants to do what's right. He wants to thank God in humble obedience. This prayer rises from the heart of one who hates sin. Who knows the horrible effect of sin in his or her life. And who does not want the devil to be walking in control of his or her life. I want to be walking with God. I want to be maintaining holiness and righteousness. I don't want the devil to be taking hold of me and the devil to be leading me down the path that leads to destruction. Beloved, what humility. God works so that we pray, let the righteous smite me. Let him reprove me. I hate sin so much 
that I want God to send others to me to expose my sin so that I can flee from it and so that that sin can be exposed in my life. Lord, send righteous men and women into my life. Not just, God, convict me by thy word so that I don't continue in sin, but Lord, give me friends. Surround me with godly, righteous individuals who are willing to admonish me and correct me when I do wrong. As we prepare, beloved, our hearts for the Lord's Supper, this is our prayer. Now, ultimately, this rebuke will come to us through the Word and the Spirit of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the righteous one. He's the one who rebukes us by His Word and Spirit. And His rebuke is always in love. His rebuke, though it hurts, though it causes great grief at times, is a rebuke that He gives us the grace to receive. And notice how personal this request is. Me! Let the righteous smite me. Let him reprove me. We're not saying, Lord... Let the righteous smite my wife. Let the righteous smite my husband. Lord, work in the hearts of someone to come and talk to my child and smite my child. This is personal. I need it. I am inclined to go astray. I am inclined to bitterness. I am inclined to hold grudges. Me. That Christ, who knows my heart, Work His Spirit in such a way that He also, within the church, raises up individuals willing in love to expose my sin and my weaknesses. And that in that way, He brings me increasingly to a humble dependence upon Him and upon His grace. Are you willing to pray this prayer, beloved? As elders, are you willing to pray this prayer? As deacons, as husbands, as wives, as teachers, are you willing to pray? Let parents smite me. Let parents come to reprove me where necessary. Is this a prayer that we're willing to pray as parents, also with regard to our own children? Let our children come and smite us. None of us can stand and say, I don't need this prayer. Every one of us need to be willing to pray this petition. And isn't it humbling, beloved? I ask myself, have I prayed this prayer today? Have I prayed it this past week? Have I prayed it this past year? This is astounding. How can I pray this prayer? How would I be willing to pray this prayer? Beloved, the possibility is only by the work of the Holy Spirit. This is the Spirit's work. God works grace in the hearts of His children by which His children cry out to Him. Also, with this petition. Now that comes out in our text, which shall not break my head. We know that it's impossible for us to desire rebuke or reproof of ourselves. Rebuke hurts. 
And we don't desire things that bring us intense pain. Our experience is to recoil from it, to run from it. By nature, we enjoy sin and we want to continue in it. And even though there can be guilt or shame, we don't want someone to come and expose our sin. And when someone does, what happens? We become angry, we become defensive. Literally, this phrase here, which shall not break my head, states, let not my head refuse it. And so what the psalmist is getting at here is his knowledge of himself. Let not my head refuse it. David is saying, I know that by nature, I'll refuse it. I don't enjoy reproof. I refuse it. David was not looking for reproof after his sin with Bathsheba and Uriah the Hittite. For a whole year, David lived in sin. Oil is not going to break one's head. It shall be an excellent oil which shall not break my head. Let not my head refuse. Because that admonition, that rebuke, though it's sharp, though it's going to hurt, is going to be as oil. And as oil, it can't ultimately break me. We're proud. We don't appreciate criticism from others. We want to be above others. Is it not true? When facing rebuke, there are typically at least three different reactions. First of all, one tries to run. One tries to escape. Often this is the case. This can be the case when elders call on someone who's walking in sin. They desire a meeting. And the person refuses to respond to the phone calls, refuses to respond to texts, will not meet, will not reply. Does everything in one's power to escape interaction with those who desire to expose or to confront them about a certain sin. This can be the case with all of us. As parents, we admonish children. The child doesn't want to come to us. The child tries to run away, tries to hide. If we see someone pull into the yard and we wonder, why is that person here? Then it dawns on us. We might know the reason. We're not inclined to answer the door. We're inclined to present, pretend that we're not home. That, first of all, trying to run, trying to flee. Secondly, there's a sense of self-justification. There's a temptation to make excuses, to try to justify our behavior. So many justifications we can come up with, and we're quick to do so, finding ways that we can justify and that we can make excuses as to why we did what we did and why what we did was correct. And we do this in our own minds, and we become so captivated that we begin to believe such lies. Convincing ourselves, we're not guilty. We're not doing anything wrong. Finally, there's the common response of striking back. We try to string back. We try to strike them who are striking at us. And we begin planning our rebuttal. If so-and-so is going to come and talk to me about this, then this is how I'm going to respond. I'm going to bring up this about him or this about her. I've got some dirt on them that I can use against them. And so we're proud. And we begin to prepare an offensive strike against, instead of being humble, to receive the rebuke. Beloved, such we are by nature. The only possibility 
of how we're not only praying this prayer, but being willing to receive such strikes is a wonder of God's grace. It's the work of Jesus Christ by His Spirit within our hearts. Now, David is a type of Christ, as we well know. And we can see this also in Christ. He was meek. He was lowly. He was willing to put himself into human flesh as God without sin. And yet, he was smitten. He was reproached. He was smitten like no one else has ever been smitten. God smote Christ after men had smitten him. And God smote him while on the cross with a stroke of judgment that we deserved. The stroke that ought to have been directed toward you and me for all of our sins. Jesus took that smiting. He endured. And he's our mediator. He's the one through whom we are able to make this prayer our own. Through the Spirit of Jesus Christ, we're able to receive rebuke not only, we're also able by God's grace to pray for such rebuke. We desire to be faithful to God. We desire to walk humbly before Him. We confess that God has begun a good work within us. We desire to see that work worked out to its completion. And our love for God and our desire to do what's right before His face and thankfulness motivates us to pray this prayer. Christ makes us desirous of spiritual things. I want to grow spiritually. I desire to increase in holiness and godliness. I know my need for Christ and for His forgiving grace. I'm not content with the life that currently I live. I desire spiritual growth. And I want to be in the Word. I want to spend time with, in prayer. Do you pray? Do I pray? If one never prays, one never gets to this prayer. But prayer is evidence of that growth and that work of God's grace in our hearts. And this is a growth. This is a sanctification that doesn't happen overnight. God uses means in our lives to bring us to the points where we're able and willing to pray a prayer like this and mean it. And God works grace enabling us to receive the correction, to receive the rebuke when necessary. Even in this psalm itself, we see a progression. And let's look at that for a few moments. If you look at the psalm, notice, the psalmist is speaking of prayer. Verse 2, Let my prayer be set forth before thee as incense, and the lifting up of my hands as the evening sacrifice. The psalmist desires to pray, and he comes into the presence of God with that spirit of prayer. Verse 3 acknowledges what's important. Set a watch, O Lord, before my mouth. Keep the door of my lips. He desires a clean tongue. He's concerned about his speech, concerned about the things that he would say to God when he comes into God's presence in prayer. And he wants to make sure that he's not guilty of evil speaking. And so as he brings his prayers to God, he prays that God will give him the grace to guard his tongue and to guard his lips so that what he prays is in accordance with God's will and God's way. In verse 4, incline not my heart to any evil thing. Heart issues are his concern. He's not just concerned about his outward walk. He's in his closet, coming into the presence of Almighty God. And he's concerned about his heart, 
about his walk with God, about that which others can't even see. But he's concerned with it because of his desire to be holy, even as God is holy, and because of his love for God. Notice verse 4 continues. To keep him from the practice of wicked works with men that work iniquity. He realizes that he's easily tempted by what's going around on around him. And he recognizes the fact that he needs to walk in a godly manner. That he ought not walk in the ways of the wicked. And that his heart is revealed by the way in which he conducts himself. So guard his heart. And to show evidence of that by not following after, not pursuing the ways of the wicked and their sinful ways. Continuing in verse 4. Let me not eat of their dainties. That refers to the temporary pleasures that sin affords. He knows those pleasures. He knows how his flesh would long for them and desire them. They're like dainties. Don't let me eat of them. Because I know there's going to be shame. There's going to be guilt. They become addictive. Those temporary pleasures that sin brings with it. It's tempting to take joy in those sins. Delight in them. And then they take hold of us. And we become addicted to it. And we continue in it. The psalmist prays, Lord, keep me from that addiction. And then finally, that brings him to the admonition of our text. Let the righteous smite me. Let him reprove me. Here we have, beloved, instruction in prayer. This psalm sets forth very carefully the manner of our prayers. Sometimes we struggle to pray. Look to this psalm. Use this psalm as a pattern. Here's what must characterize your and my prayers. This is the spirit with which we need to pray. The Spirit of God, working in the child of God, drawing him to himself, working in him the desire to pray, and then working in him also the sensitivity to the various aspects of his lips, his heart, his actions. And in that spirit, a willingness then to receive reproof and correction. What really lies beneath all of this is covenant friendship with God. Covenant friendship with God is so precious that I don't want anything in my life to disrupt it. And beloved, that's the perspective with which we face the Lord's Supper. Union with Christ, knowing the wonder of God's covenant, that's more precious to me than anything else. And for that I desire to sacrifice all my will that thy will be done. This petition, beloved, is possible only by God's grace. In the heart of the regenerated child of God, where God is working the wonder of sanctification. A hard prayer, possible by the work of the Holy Spirit, that involves blessing. And notice that blessing here. It shall be a kindness. It shall be an excellent oil. God will bless this prayer. Now, you know what that means. And that's scary for our flesh. When we pray this prayer, God may send individuals into my life to correct me and to reprove me. God will work through the preaching and through the power of the word to make his word like a two-edged sword 
that will pierce me asunder and will expose my sin. We need to be careful for what we pray, recognizing God is pleased to answer such prayers. And then we need to be willing and ready also with the humility that's necessary. Now the flip side of this is there's no profit to one who refuses rebuke. The Proverbs are filled with warnings about that, as are the Psalms. The one who refuses rebuke, who refuses correction, goes the way of a fool to his own destruction. He stubbornly will not listen to anyone, will not hear them, refuses to hear correction, and he dies then unrepentant in his or her sin. That's tragic. A death in impenitence is destruction in hell to all eternity. The one who prays this prayer from the heart is the one who desires rebuke for the sake of the glory of God. The one who looks to God. The one who knows the wonder of God's mercy and God's goodness. And in whose heart and life God works repentance. God works sensitivity to sin. And God works an increased awareness of one's dependence upon Christ. God uses this prayer, beloved, to keep us from the ways of sin. That comes out in that last phrase. For yet my prayer shall be in their calamities. Literally, the word here is, yet my prayer also shall be against their wicked deeds. David was tempted to join the wicked at times. Tempted to throw in the towel and say, it's not worth it trying to live a Christian life. I might as well just join with the wicked and follow in the ways of their wicked ways. And there are times when we too become weary in the midst of the battle, inclined to just join the wicked, go the way that the world goes. But God's grace is such that it keeps us from those ways of sin. My prayer shall be against their wicked deeds. God works in our hearts in such a way that our prayers are such that they work in us increased boldness to pursue the way that's right, to pursue the way that's holy, to keep ourselves from the ways of sin. Now the fruit is especially twofold, kindness and an excellent oil. First of all, it shall be as kindness. Kindness is the attitude of friends in covenant friendship. How do you show kindness one to another? Here's how we show kindness. In addressing matters in a biblical fashion. It's not kind to ignore sin. It's not kind to allow friends to continue in sin. Kindness and love move one to admonish. Where there's sin, there's division. The swift, sharp smiting is intended to eliminate the division and to work the wonder of peace by God's grace. This is striking as hard as it is to bring reproof. And as hard as it is to receive reproof, God says, this is the way of kindness. This is the way of blessedness. This is the way in which the covenant blessings of God will be evident. Communion with God, communion with the neighbor, enhanced. Not only is love toward God restored, love also among the congregation. It shall be a kindness. Not a cruelty, not a hardship, a kindness. 
But then secondly, it shall be an excellent oil. There's a reference here to oil on the head. This oil works healing. And that's the use that we find of oil. It was used for anointing in the Bible, but it also was used for healing. Think of the, Samar- the Good Samaritan. He finds the man who's been beat up, and he takes oil, and he applies oil to his wounds. Pouring oil into those wounds, being a picture of that remedy for sin. Sin is a self-inflicting wound. And the effects of sin are abundant. They reap all kinds of consequences in our lives. Oil signifies the grace of restoration, the grace of healing. God sends loved ones as oil to heal, to bring recovery, to restore us. And God works in us repentance. He works in us sorrow for sin. God will not allow His children to continue unrepentantly in sin. And God, by the work of His Spirit, applies that oil, that forgiveness, that grace in our lives. We cry out in repentance. And we're given to know kindness, communion, and fellowship within the covenant. And we're given to know the wonder of God's grace in Jesus Christ by which we're forgiven. That oil of gladness, that oil by which we're forgiven through the blood of Jesus Christ. He who paid the price of my sin, who stood in my place and was smitten on my account, that now He might work in me by His Spirit to smite me and give me to know the joy and wonder of my salvation. Beloved, as we examine our hearts, may we walk humbly. May we make this a matter of prayer, willing to receive and to hear correction, rebuke. May we look forward, next Sunday, Lord willing, to the balm of Gilead, that soothing balm, the wonder of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. As we see our sin, we confess that sin, and we find forgiveness through the blood of Jesus Christ alone. Amen. Our Father who art in heaven, we thank Thee for Thy grace, a grace that works in us a willingness to sacrifice of self for the sake of Thy glory. And grant unto us that spirit of humility. Give unto us that spirit by which we might in love admonish and correct one another and receive correction. And in that way may Covenant love be evident in our midst as kindness is expressed and as we grow together in our appreciation for the wonder of the blood of Jesus Christ. Amen.